Luke chapter 13, today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you could ask God one question... What would you ask him? Many, many people would come up with the question, why do bad things happen to good people? If the God of the Bible is the one true God, then for many, many people, this is the mystery of life and the perennial question. Why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is, they don't. They don't. Now, listen, I'm going to be speaking in a biblical theological way. I, I would say about someone, for, I'll give you an example. There's a horrific example very recently that I just saw in the news of a, of a mother being charged with first degree murder of her four very young children. And I would say about those children, the innocent have suffered. I would say about them that the innocent suffered and great injustice was done. And I would uh, feel free to also say about someone who who is an unbeliever, and I know many like this, I would say he is a good man. But in those cases, I'm speaking in a human way, understand, in a human way. And I'm comparing them with others when I say he's a good man or that is an innocent child. We're doing that in comparison to other people. But in relationship to God, in comparison to God, in the the state of the human heart compared to the holiness of God, there are no good people. And so when I say, in response to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And I say they don't. I'm not saying bad things don't happen. They happen all the time. What I am saying is that there are no good people. So bad things happen. And they happen to all people. And they only happen to bad people. As the Bible says, and as you believe, none is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. None does good. Not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the the mystery is not why do bad things happen to good people? The question that we should be asking is why do good things happen to bad people? Because that's really the norm of life. Good things happening to bad people every day. Why are we caught by surprise when bad things happen? Why do we get down when bad things happen? Because it's not the norm of our lives. 
We don't expect bad things and crisis every single day. We expect a, a, a sense of uh, normalcy. We expect good. And we've all had good in our lives. That's the norm of our lives. So we should be asking, why do good things happen to bad people? There's one exception to this, this rule that bad things happen to only bad people. There is an exception. And that's Jesus Christ. Bad things happened to the one good person. And that's why you and I today have the Gospel. The worst things happen to the one good person. So that the worst people who repent may have the best things. The best things will happen to the worst people who repent. And this is the truth then that Jesus lays out for us in Luke chapter 13. It is still true that the worst things will happen to the best people who do not repent. As Jesus again continued to address the crowd, it says there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate, who was the governor of the province of Judea for Rome, had certain Galileans murdered. Probably it was because they were under suspicion of some kind of political insurrection or something like that. But the crime was horrific. And what what made the crime especially horrific was not only what Jesus what Pilate did to the victims themselves, but what Pilate did against the Jews as a whole. It was not only against those people, but against the Jewish religion. It would be like somebody coming in here and before we celebrated the Lord's Supper or in the midst of celebrating the Lord's Supper, if they would kill some of us and mix blood in with the communion cup. They would not only clearly hate us, but also hate Christianity. And that's what Pilate was making abundantly clear. Not only did he hate the Jewish people or have Pilate had nothing for them, but he had nothing for their religion. And so these people come to Jesus wanting something from him. They want, they want some kind of response to this very scandalous, horrendous crime. Not surprisingly, they don't get from Jesus what they're looking for. This is the case all the time with Jesus, isn't it? He doesn't speak to what we want him to speak to. Kind of like that man that we saw earlier that said, Jesus, tell my brother to give his, the, you know, part of the inheritance to me. And Jesus said, who made me a judge and an arbitrator over you? And then he went into lay up treasures in heaven. It's the same kind of thing here. He doesn't give the people what they are looking for. He's very, very good at providing us with a reality check. You see, we're, we're looking all over the place. Our eyes are wandering. We're into, you know, issues that are all on the margins. And Jesus says, wake up. Wake up to reality. He brings us back to the central things, what ultimately matters. He shows us what is ultimately at stake. And that's what he does here. So Jesus answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans for having suffered 
in this way. Jesus asks if we believe that extraordinary suffering is a sign of extraordinary sin. You know that people believe this. You know that many Christians believe that extraordinary suffering is a sign of extraordinary sin. People say, look at what they're suffering. They deserved it. They had it coming to them. Or about someone who is going through a hard time. I hope they learned their lesson this time around. Extraordinary suffering is a sign of extraordinary sin. Many believe. What will get us talking? A tsunami in the Indian Ocean? December 24th, 2004, 250,000 lose their lives. A hurricane in New Orleans the following year. An earthquake in Haiti in 2010. A shooting at Virginia Tech or on the streets of Paris, Colorado, or shooting in Orlando. And cue automatically all the leaps to judgment. Extraordinary suffering is a sign of extraordinary sin. And do not get me wrong. We are all sinners. And it may be, it may be that someone suffers extraordinarily in this life for extraordinary sin. But Jesus is telling us that extraordinary suffering is not a sign of extraordinary sin. Leaps to judgment cannot happen. He says, don't go looking at their hearts and jumping to conclusions by the pain that they have suffered. Don't think about their hearts. Think about your heart. Your heart. The astounding thing is that you are still alive. You're here. You're healthy enough to be in this room. The words of Jesus are still ringing in our ears. And we have an opportunity today to repent. Now, we might say, well, that's an isolated example. That's why Jesus gives two. He wants to be abundantly clear. He is forceful and he is adamant, so he brings up another case. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. So now we don't have a deliberate act of violence. We have something that we would call, quote unquote, an accident. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So about those who suffered by a deliberate act of violence and those who suffered an accident, Jesus responds, where they were sinners, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Listen, enough bodies have been left in the wake of these two tragic incidents that it would be foolish for you and I to continue going on making presumptuous leaps of judgment against those who suffer in extraordinary ways. As extraordinary reward is not the sign of extraordinary righteousness, so extraordinary suffering doesn't indicate extraordinary sin. Jesus says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The timing of someone's death and the manner of someone's death does not separate them in any spiritual way from anyone else. Like, if you die sooner, you were obviously unrighteous. And if you happen to die later, then it's a sign that you were more 
righteous. Death does not separate us. Death levels us. Death is the great equalizer. All are sinners deserving of death. Everlasting death. And on the other side of death, we will suffer eternal loss unless in this life we repent. Only repentance will save you and save me from the death that is forever. Only repentance. This is the gateway to salvation. Understand, it's not merely an escape. It's an escape, but not merely an escape. It's not just a ticket out. It is the gateway to God. Repentance brings us to God. Jesus says in John chapter 5 that if you repent and you receive Him, you will not come under judgment, He says, but pass from death to life. Now, this is important. If you're a note taker, get ready. Get that pen ready. I've got a lot for you. If you're not a note taker, you might want to consider it today. Um, I've got a lot for you. And that should, that should not discourage you. Listen. God says to us, unless you repent, you will perish. That's what He says. So, if God would say to us then, okay, so what is repentance? And we would say, uh, hmm, give me a minute. Let me think. I mean, not good, right? If repentance is the way to be saved, we should know as thoroughly and as best as we can what repentance is. So today, I want to take some time as we expound on this passage to talk about what repentance involves and where it needs to take place in our lives. What is repentance? Fundamentally, to repent means to change or to turn. Repent means to change. And God requires this change in our minds, in our hearts, and in our wills. That is, in the mind, in our thinking about sin, in our hearts, in what we feel about sin, and in our wills, what we choose in regard to sin. So first of all, God requires a change in our minds. He requires that we come into godly agreement with Him about our sin. That we agree with God and what He says about our sin. And God says that your sin and my sin is exceedingly sinful. If we think deep down that our sin is not that big of a deal, and the Bible just makes too much of it, and Jesus going to the cross for it, and the unrepentant going to hell for it, is God seriously overreacting? Then we do not agree with God about what our sin is. That it is exceedingly sinful. The repentant mind agrees with God in what He says about sin. Second, 
we must have now godly feeling toward our sin. Before, we loved our sin. We relished our sin. We reveled in it. Now God requires that we despise our sin. And I know, we sin because we desire it. We sin because we want to, ultimately. But we must hate our sin. Our feeling towards sin must change. Now this, uh, take a little time on this matter. Because this is a really hard thing to detect. God requires a godly sorrow in our hearts over sin. That's part of what constitutes true repentance. Godly sorrow. But you know what? Everybody's sorry for sin. Everybody. Everybody regrets at some point the things that they did that were wrong. Hell is full of people who are sorrowful over their sin. Where can we discern the difference between true repentance in our hearts and false repentance? Between godly sorrow, this is coming from Corinthians, and worldly sorrow. You know, because godly sorrow leads to repentance, which is to life. And worldly sorrow, the Bible says, leads to death. So you better make sure that you have the right kind of regret in your heart over sin. That regret which is indicative of true repentance. So here's the thing. There are two consequences for sin. One's immediate and one's eventual. The first consequence is pleasure. Right? That's why we sin. We we think that acting that way or doing that thing or thinking those thoughts is going to bring us pleasure, satisfaction. And that's why we we sin every single day. But the eventual consequence is pain. And we know very well that the pain ends up always being greater than the pleasure. So here's the test for our hearts to see what kind of regret we have. What if the consequence of pain was removed altogether? What if it was like taken out of the picture and there were not going to be any consequences for your sin as far as pain goes on earth, heaven, hell, no consequences. God would not hold it over your head in the least. Would you then go back to the sin that you regret? Would you relish it? Or would you stand fast and refuse it? Because not only do you hate those painful consequences of sin, but you hate the sin itself. You don't just regret the consequences, you actually or the pain, but you actually regret the pleasure too. You are sorry in your heart for having offended the holy God who has set His love on you. So if pain was out of the way, if it was taken out of the picture, and you wouldn't face those consequences, would you go back to that sin you regret? I think, even though it's still a difficult test to think your way through, I think it's a good and a necessary test to diagnose the, the repentant, sorrowful condition of our hearts. To see if it's that true repentance or whether it's false. Would you go back to the sin if there was no pain involved? So God requires a change in our minds, in our thinking about sin, in our feeling towards sin. And third, repentance involves the will. It involves what we purpose and what we choose. Rather than choosing the way of sin, we must now purpose that we're going to choose the way of godliness. 
And that's all I'm going to say about that one for now. But those three things. So repentance is change. It's a turn. And it involves your mind, your heart, and your will. You're thinking about sin, you're feeling toward it, and your choices in its regard. But what must we repent of in order to be saved? And let, let me say before I go any further, you may think, how can anybody dead in sin produce that kind of change in their lives? You can't. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. Repentance is God's gift. And to whomever God gives the gift, they will experience the change. What must we repent of in order to be saved? There are two sins that every heart must turn from in order to be saved. You must turn from these sins and I must too. We must each of us turn from our self-rule, number one, and receive Jesus as Lord. And number two, we must turn from our self-righteousness and receive Jesus as Savior. These are, I'm trying to put it as concisely and and comprehensively as I can. Turn from self-rule and receive Jesus as Lord. Turn from self-righteousness and receive Jesus as Savior. When we talk about the exceeding sinfulness of sin, you know what makes sin so bad? I was trying to, to stress this to, to Clay and to Lacey and to Caitlin this past week in VBS one night. What makes sin so bad? Why, why was the, the sin in the garden such a big deal? I mean, they ate an apple for crying out loud. That the whole human race should be plunged into death and ruin is a cosmic overreaction on God's part. If that's all that sin is, just pretty good. That's not the essence of sin. The essence of their sin is self-rule. And that's what brought them over the line. The tempter said to them, "In the, you're not going to die, as God says, in the day that you eat this fruit. God knows that when you eat of this thing, you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. Ah. Oh. And so when they looked at the fruit and saw that it was desirable to the eyes, and to make one wise, they crossed over the line because they would be like God. They could decide what is right and what is wrong. They would be gods to themselves. They would be able to set the standards. There would be self-rule. They would be divine. That's what urged them over. And we are all born in this sin, wanting what we want when we want it. We have all. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, we have turned everyone to his own way. It's as simple as this. Not you, God. Me. Not you. Me. It's idolatry. It's self-rule. It's saying, I'm going my way and I'm doing my thing. And so we must all repent of that self-rule and say, I have acted as though I was in charge. I've gone my own way. I have sinned all my life long against your standard. 
And I'm turning from that life and I'm turning to Christ and I submit to Him as Lord. Have you repented of self-rule? Second, we must also turn from self-righteousness. Even if we believe that we need to be saved as God says we need to be saved, do you believe that only God can do that? Only God can save. You cannot save yourself. But every person who is self-righteous is trusting in their own goodness to make them right with God. If, if my good just, you know, outweighs my bad on the scales, I got a bigger lump of good and a smaller lump of bad. I'm going to be safe within the kingdom. That self-righteousness that's trusting in you. And we must each turn from our self-righteousness and receive Jesus alone as our Savior. The Apostle Paul, before he was known as the Apostle or Paul, is the classic case of self-righteousness. You remember what he writes in Philippians? Before Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, this is what Paul said. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, confidence in themselves, I have more. Listen, circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, we're awesome. A Hebrew of Hebrews, check. As to the law, a Pharisee, check, check. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, check, check, check. Classic self-righteousness. That was Paul before he encountered Christ, before Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. He had this incredible life built up for himself. I mean, the spiritual resume was impeccable. But that resume, when he met Jesus on the road, that resume went straight into the shredder. And this is what he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Listen, this is the key. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Do you think God will accept you on that day of reckoning? You need righteousness. But you cannot find it within yourself. It is not found in any obedience. The law cannot save us. He said, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that comes through faith. Righteousness is His gift. How do you receive it? Count yours as loss. Put your spiritual resume in the shredder and say, God, I have nothing. I mean, everybody says, right? Everybody says, well, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I, I, I think I remember somebody, maybe it was George, telling me that somebody he had met said that they were perfect. But that, that person is clearly delusional. Everybody knows it. And obviously they are the exception to that rule of even just thinking that way. Everybody says, I'm not perfect. But do you freely confess that you are bankrupt of righteousness? 
If God would look in your heart apart from His grace, apart from His grace and His intervention and His Spirit, there's no righteousness to be found. In fact, all the the civil, social good of our lives, all our contributions to society, all of that, you know, when, when you say, that's a good person, and you can really mean it, or you say, that person is innocent, or what have you, in comparison to God, His standard, His heart, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so it's, you know what? You don't just have to repent of your sin and coming to God to be saved. You actually have to repent of your righteousness. So we say, my good Lord, the good I have is nothing. It's, that's why Paul said, whatever gain I had, I count as loss. And she said, it's rubbish. It's nothing. Do you freely confess you are bankrupt of righteousness and that your heart is in fact evil? Every heart apart from God is a wicked heart. And we all need to repent. So we must repent of self-rule, receive Jesus as Lord by faith, and repent of self-righteousness and receive Jesus as Savior. And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. Listen. The greatest temptation for those who know that they need to repent is to put it off. The thought goes that God takes the sinner at any time of his life. So even on my deathbed, I can repent and God will take me. And I have all of my life long to do as I want to do and have my fun and, and get my, my full. But listen, if that is you today, there are two lies that you believe. Your heart has been deceived in two things. First, you probably think that one day you'll have had enough of sin. You'll be done with sin. And second, you likely believe that God will never be done with sinners. And those, neither one of those things is true. Neither one is true. First of all, if you think one day you'll be done with sin, that you'll have had enough, the truth is the more you sin, the more you want to sin. So so maybe you're dabbling in sin today. Oh, there's just a little bit of sin. But you believe you're dabbling in that sin. You, you dabble in it because you believe that it's more satisfying to you than God is. And, and you want the, the sin as little as it is. You want it more than God. And why do you think that if you want the little sin more than God, that you won't want the bigger sin more than God? Eventually, the satisfaction of the little sin is not going to satisfy you. But that does not mean that then you will turn to God. It, it doesn't mean that you'll say, okay, now I'm done. I don't want sin anymore. Listen. In the day that the little sin doesn't satisfy, more sin will be put on the table. More sin, bigger sin will be there for the taking. And the second lie is that God will never be done with sinners. One day, I'll be done with sin. And second, God is never done with sinners. And so we say, it's never too late to repent. But the truth is that before the unrepentant realize it, it is too late. 
before they realize it, it is too late. You don't know that a reckoning is not right around the corner. I'm, I don't want to be, you know, scary or anything like that or, or silly even. But you don't know going down Alls Chapel Road that some idiot is not going to come over the hill in the wrong lane and put you before God. You don't know it. So Jesus closes with a warning parable in verses 6 to 9. If you would look back down at your Bible, please. Jesus closes with a warning parable. He said, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So the owner of this vineyard had planted a fig tree amongst his vines with the hopes that, you know, since the conditions in the vineyard were ripe for fruit bearing, he would have a a very fruitful tree. So he keeps on coming in fruit bearing season to, to look for figs. And every time he comes looking for fruit, there's nothing to be found. He goes away disappointed every time. So finally, he has had enough. He has been slow to anger and he has been patient, but now enough is enough and judgment looms over the tree. But here now the vine dresser intervenes. Verses 8 and 9. And the vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now this is not... God, you know, having conflict within himself or anything like that. Time for judgment. Oh, wait, you know, like he's listening to opposite figures putting something in his ears or something like Jesus would be saying, Father, wait, wait, hold off judgment for now. There's no discord within the will of God, no discord within the the Trinity. This is simply the patience of God. This is the long suffering of God. God is slow to anger. We're all here because God is slow to anger. We're alive. We're healthy. Healthy enough to be here. And we have the words of Jesus ringing in our ears because God is patient. Because God is slow to anger. And notice, at the end of verse 9, the story, Jesus doesn't wrap it up. It's open-ended. We don't know what happened with the tree. Did it start to bear fruit? Or did the owner end up having it cut down? And this open-ended closing parallels the lives of all living. God is slow to anger. And God is patient. But God is looking for the fruits of repentance. And judgment looms. Will we repent? Time is running out. Time is running out. And that is why it is a dreadful error for any person to put off repentance one more day. Now I have three applications in closing. And I'll do these quickly. Three applications for you, Christian. First, when you first repented, it was not one and done. Right? You understand that? that we as Christians have entered into a life of repentance. Isn't the Christian life a a life of growing 
increasing sanctification, changing. We're in a life of changing. That means we're in a life of repentance. So I'll give you these three applications as, as don't you dares. Don't you dare believe that repentance is only for the unbeliever. We are all turning to God. Second, God is looking for the fruits of repentance. This is crucial. Repentance and good works are not the same things. So don't you dare go looking for the fruits of repentance or asking for the fruits of repentance in an unbeliever's life. Don't you dare require the fruits of repentance in order for someone to be saved. Because the fruits of repentance are good works. Those fruits are the result of being saved. They are not required to be saved. Please understand that. Don't require good works for any to be saved. Because if you do, if you make that requirement or you fail to make this distinction between repentance and the fruits of it in your mind, you're putting, you're confusing the root with the fruit. You're, you're confusing cause with effect. You're putting the cart before the horse. That's what you're doing when you confuse the fruits of repentance with repentance itself. And then third, when you share the good news of Jesus with sinners, when you evangelize, don't you dare leave out repentance. Don't you dare leave it out of the message, out of the call to Jesus Christ. Listen, as Jesus makes so clear in this, people are perishing. And people are entering into the judgment of God every single day and night by the thousands upon thousands upon thousands. We need to spread the good news of Jesus. We need to tell them that Jesus saves. But we must also tell them that they need to repent. Now, I would actually say... um, You don't need to use the word repentance. In fact, I wouldn't discourage you from using the word, but I would caution you about using the word repent because people don't know what it means. And so talk to them about leaving behind self-rule and submitting to Jesus as Lord by faith and leaving behind self-righteousness and receiving Jesus as Savior. Speak to them of confessing their sin to God and forsaking it in their hearts along those lines. And if you use the word repent, you're going to have to explain what you mean. But we all need to turn to God from having gone our own way to receiving Him. Here is the problem. And this is, you know, I grew up, I was I was actually trained in this kind of environment for, for ministry that the call to repentance was not issued to sinners and it was not seen as necessary. Believe in Jesus as Savior and you don't need to worry until afterward about His Lordship. It's a dreadful mistake. Do you know why there are so many Christians living in sin? Or Do you know why so many are living in sin without a care and still fully convinced that they are in fact Christians? Because they never repented. 
They're not repentant now. They never were repentant in the beginning. And very often it's the case that they were never told they needed to repent. They were just told, ask Jesus into your heart or believe in Him to be your Savior. We need to give them the whole Gospel which addresses the whole person. Heart, mind, and will. We must receive Christ as Savior and Lord by faith. Turning from our self-rule and our self-righteousness. For Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. Let's pray. Father, the change that You require in us, we cannot make. Oh Lord, I pray that no one would think that they can, by their own effort, produce this change in their lives, in their minds, in their hearts, and their wills. God, I pray that no one would be so deceived. We have no spiritual capacity on our own to come to You. Every good effort we make falls infinitely short of Your glory. So, Lord, wake us up. Wake us up to the fact that this repentance is a gift from God. And Lord, I fully believe that You hold it out to us today. And I pray, Father, however much we need to repent today, we would repent. If someone has never been repentant, never turned from ruling their own life to having Christ as Lord, from trying on their own to get to You, to receiving Jesus as Savior, I pray, oh my God, that You would save them today and they would abandon all their hope in them and put all their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, one more thing I ask. As we consider how serious and dreadful our sin actually is, I pray that everybody here would be fully convinced that there is more grace in your heart than there is sin in our hearts. And I pray that all would rejoice in Jesus. In His name I pray. Amen.